You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Earlier this summer, I began a new podcast all about Broadway history, diving into the journeys of shows that have come and gone from the Marquee Theater in Times Square. And one of the shows I talk about is the infamous musical Nick and Nora. Its creative team was filled with iconic legends of musical theater. There was the director, Arthur Lawrence, the composer, Charles Strauss, and the lyricist, Richard Maltby Jr. Hi, I'm Richard Maltby. I was born in Ripon, Wisconsin. Me and the Republican Party were both born in Ripon, Wisconsin. I lived in Chicago for a while and then moved to Long Island. I went to school in New Hampshire and then went to Yale and then came to New York. So I'm a New Yorker. I've been dyed in the wool. And I wrote the lyrics to Nick and Nora with Charles Strauss, who was the composer. Well, several years ago, in my very first off-Broadway contract, I got to work with Richard. He was designated as the creative consultant, but for all intents and purposes, he was essentially the co-director of a brand new musical called The Magdalene. So when I decided to do an episode about Nick and Nora for my new podcast, I reached out to Richard to share his own experiences of working on that show. And believe me, it is quite the story to tell. The show didn't make any sense. It it didn't grab you so that you were interested in the dilemma of the main characters. You weren't interested in the murder mystery. You weren't interested in the story between Nick and Nora. That was extremely vague and extremely unclear. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Why I'll Never Make It. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer for more than 30 years. And today's special episode with Richard Maltby Jr. is actually being released in conjunction with the Nick and Nora episode on Closing Night. So look for that podcast on this app, or you'll find a link to it in the show notes. And stick around at the end of this episode for a short preview of Closing Night's look at Nick and Nora. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Well, welcome, Richard. It is so good to reconnect with you again. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Well, it's a it's a pleasure, I think. I mean, <laughs> tiptoeing through the tulips of Nick and Nora can be a mixed bag, but yes. Well, we will tiptoe gingerly, but uh, I look forward to our discussion about it because 
Nick and Nora was a short-lived Broadway musical back in 1991 and had book and direction with Arthur Lawrence. Charles Strauss composed the music and you wrote the lyrics. So who exactly came up with the idea to turn these Thin Man movies into a musical and how did you become involved with it? The producers of La Cage aux Folles had a very successful time working with Arthur Lawrence on that show. And they had the idea of you know, using the Thin Man stories as a basis of a musical. And they brought it to Arthur, and Arthur didn't want to write it, but he would agreed to direct it, and they, they thought that was fine because he had directed um, the Kajo Fall. And uh, they suggested Charles Strauss, and uh, Charles doesn't have a regular lyricist, and they, you know, knew me and, and uh, suggested that I come in. And the book was going to be written by A.R. Gurney, playwright who I have always wanted to work with. So I was just thrilled. I thought it was a really perfect project for him. And so I went happily into it because I was going to be able to work with Pete Gurney. But as soon as we started working on it, it was clear that Arthur had lots and lots of writer ideas that he couldn't get past. And Pete quite quickly realized, Arthur, you you really want to write this, write it, because those are your ideas, you know, and what you're doing is telling me what to do as a writer don't do that. So um, <laughs> I, I had signed on to for the sole purpose of working with Pete Gurney, and that was not what I had. Then we had an unholy position, because when you have the director and the writer being the same person, there's nobody to turn to. Right. That's not very often that writers are also directors. What was that relationship working with him like? Well, it was... It, it was complicated. It was from time to time. It was really wonderful. Um, he can be very, very charming when he wants to. Uh, he can also be very, very mean when he wants to. And for some reason, on the basis of the of a sketch for the first act, Charles and I started to write the score, which was a really big mistake because uh, we really had written a whole lot of almost all of the first act before I actually saw the second act and realized where the story was going. We didn't really know. And um, Arthur's major problem with the show, I think, this is my analysis, he thought that the mystery didn't matter in The Thin Man, that as a mystery story, you could take it away and, and what was charming was the characters. That may be true, that we were charmed by the characters, but there was a mystery and that's what held the story together. And it got solved at the end. And Arthur really didn't construct a mystery in which there were clues, in which there were things that somebody had to put together in order to solve it. And there was a satisfying ending. So um, when he finally brought the second act in, and it turned out that the houseboy, who was the lover of the film actress who was played by Kirsty Baranski, but it turned out that he was the one who did it for her, it was kind of ludicrous and the audience laughed at it. So, But you, as you said, you didn't know that until you saw the second act. So how much of the first act had to change once you caught wind of what the second act, where it was going? Not nearly enough. I mean, you know, we, we all sort of liked it. What we did that was kind of satisfactory was there were big, long sessions where the two, Nick and Nora, decide to pick up clues and put them together in very, very long musical sequences with lots of, lots of elements. Those are very exciting. One was called A Busy Night at Lorraine's, which was all of the people who showed up in the evening before the murder. So any one of them could have done it. And uh, another one was uh, 
a uh, another c- collection of clues. It was called, uh, I think it was called Murderland, um, and uh, it, it was it was Nick and Nora putting the clues in. He had one really interesting premise, which was this uh, actress friend of uh, of Nora's. That's Christine Bradsey, Had has been accused of a murder, and she asks them to come in and solve it for them. And Nora wants to do it and nick wants to be retired and just live off of nora's money um so he says he turns it down but nora says well what you do isn't very hard i'll do it which is a a nice premise so she starts going off trying to be nick charles and um be a, a you know a detective and the twist of it is that even though nick says he's going to stay out of it and let her do it He's too much of a detective to not be sort of sucked in. So mm-hmm. he starts going in and undercutting what she's doing because he can't stop himself. It's a it, it's a nice device that lasted um, through the, you know through the first act. Yeah, and as we said, you worked alongside composer Charles Strauss, who will forever be famous for creating Annie. What was it like working with him creating the score? Oh, he's 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 a music machine. I mean, he just he can't put his fingers on the keyboard without writing an attractive melody in a, in a sense it's almost his his weakness as well as his strength because you know if you can write too many good melodies it's hard to have the one exceptional melody um as for example um the song tomorrow which actually wasn't written for annie at all it was it was a trunk song so mm-hmm. Now, do lyricists like you, do you have trunk lyrics <laughs> in the same way that composers have trunk songs? Uh, well, there I did during the 80s. Um, I had a file, which I called the urban file. And um, people would tell me stories about their life or they tell me something about something else or about some other person or uh, something would happen to me that you know seemed to be a song. And I would write, a jotting, a paragraph, a stanza, a, a, sometimes an entire outline, um, and s- just sort of stick it in the file. And along the way, I'd show show it to David Shire every now and then, and 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 then he'd write a melody, and then we'd work over it. And slowly, we began to assemble this collection of of uh, very personal um, uh, story songs that are the basis of. Uh, well, it was next time now, but became closer than ever. And so, yes, I have a little bit of a file like that. <laughs> well, when it comes to Nick and Nora, what would you say was the easiest part about writing it? And what was the most challenging? None of it was easy. It was a, a difficult thing all the way through because the central impulse of it was plot directed as opposed to character directed. So therefore, our two main characters suffering through what is basically a happy marriage but having having a you know a little dead spot in the in a happy marriage um neither of them actually expressed a lot of <laughs> emotional feeling and uh and then of course all the people who were implicated in the mystery they weren't real people they you know they were characters in a murder mystery so what seems like an extremely attractive idea when you get right down to it lacks an inherent heart Would that be because Arthur Lawrence just wasn't a true mystery writer in the truest sense of that term? I would say that's certainly part of it. I mean, 
you know, he, I don't think he understood mysteries. I mean, if you want to, there is uh, Raymond Chandler, I think, wrote a beautiful short essay about the rules of making a mystery, a murder mystery. And we broke almost all of them, but you, you can't. There are rules like the ending has to be given a natural conclusion to all the things that have come in front of it. You have to be given enough information along the way so that when it is un- unraveled, you have you can solve it yourself. You know all all the facts are there. They can mm-hmm. be disguised. They can be any, any number of things, but they have to be there so that when the pieces come together and there's a twist, um, or it suddenly you know suddenly you understand it all, it's been fair. And uh, there are a bunch of other rules, but that's the that's the biggie. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You have to give the audience a chance to figure it out, or at least part of it. Yeah. They have to feel that they are going to figure it out. Yeah. And if you're going to trick them with a twist of some sort, it has to be completely fair. You can't like just bring in a character who's never been there before, or as in our case, suddenly decide completely arbitrarily that he did it. Mm-hmm. I have to tell you that when Arthur brought in the second act and I read it for the first time, I called him and said, Arthur, are you kidding? The butler did it? (laughs) I mean, is that not a joke? Uh, Won't that be laughed off the stage? And, you know, he said, no, no, it'll be fine. And indeed, in rehearsal, we always got to the last scene, and the butler did it, and nobody laughed. Um, And I thought, well, okay, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. We hit an audience on the first preview, we got to that scene. It turned out that the butler did it. The audience burst into laughter, and ba- and it wasn't kind laughter. It was laughing at it, and um, yeah, after the ludicrousness of it, Arthur did not understand why the audience was laughing. Hmm. As soon as we got to the chic New York press, they would understand what he was doing. The chic New York press did not understand what he was doing, and clobbered, you know up and down the wall. Yeah, well, I want to turn briefly to the the cast itself. Now, were you present for any of the auditions or, or bringing people in? Oh, of course. Okay, yeah. obviously we know who was cast, but were there any people that you saw just stood out in that audition process? Well, we had, I mean, like, we had Barry Bostwick, I mean, as, as good as you can get. Joanna Gleason, who had just uh, done, I guess, has she done Into the Woods? Of, yeah, she did. Yeah, she won the Tony, yeah. She won the Tony for, for Into the Woods, and she's, you know, magnificent. I mean, the, Christine Baranski, before she hit her TV stardom, but she was just terrific. And, and nobody knew that Christine was a great singer. I mean, a soprano. She studied opera. Um, Deborah Monk, who is as funny as anybody could possibly be, you know, they were spectacularly good. The cast was just wonderful. Yeah. And I assume the show was fully written by the time you got to auditions. You know, we go through rewrites, of course. I think pretty much. Yeah. And once you had your cast, uh, exactly what of the writing started to change as you had specific actors and characters now in these roles? Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Um, the quality of the actors raised the level of the writing to some extent. You know, the, the, the writing had to be better. We did a lot of rewriting of the score. Arthur didn't do a whole lot of rewriting of the script, but, uh, which he could have. But we did change a lot. There were a number of songs that went in and came out, in and came out in different times. Jonathan Tunick, who is the orchestrator of the show, said it was one of the shows he made the most money on ever 
because every time you restaged a number or rethought a number, you'd have to reorchestrate it. Oh, God, you know. So he was doing very, very well. I think Jonathan is the only person who did do well on that show. <laughs> Financially, you mean, yes. <laughs> and the producers chose to not do an out-of-town tryout. Do you know why that choice was made? I don't think they had enough money to go out of town. Hmm. I mean, it was foolish because it was such a complicated show. Uh, I mean, in terms of the things that the audience had to know in order to make the things go together. I mean, it was clearly there was going to be a lot of work that was going to be done to it. The problem, again, was that the author was sleeping with the director, and, um, and that's never <laughs> a good idea. So, that, so you know, if, if the director thought he needed something, the author convinced him that it was already there and, you know. Yeah, and vice versa. If the director needs something, the writer could just, like, whip it out and there you go. Problem yeah, solved. There you are. <laughs> they talked to each other, and and um, and it was uh, very hard to create any kind of seamless show out of that. And I assume that that became difficult for you and, and maybe Strauss as well to work with. Yeah, I mean, Arthur really liked me and and was extremely kind to me up and, until up until the show opened. Um, but uh, uh, but I, it, it, he was he was difficult to. To, he was difficult in that he had his ideas of how things worked and um, and couldn't be shaken. Um, he he really did need a strong director to you know give him focus to tell him that scene isn't sufficient or that isn't enough or the character we need to know more about this. Arthur, I mean Charles and I would write these very long numbers in which the the sleuths solve something and it's really they were really good they were well staged and everything but at the end of at the end of something like that you have to come up with a a discovery mm -hmm. if you're going to do that a big um a big mental process by which you figure out something it has to be a turning point in the story but that usually never happened. The story just sort of picked up and went on afterwards. I see. Yeah, yeah. Usually it's the book that's carrying the story and the songs highlight or emphasize that. But it sounds like it was the songs that were really telling the story, but the book kind of went in another direction. Well, yeah, that's, that is sort of true. I mean, the show didn't make any sense. It didn't, it, it didn't grab you so that you were interested in the dilemma of the main characters um, you weren't interested in the murder mystery. You weren't interested in, in the story between Nick and Nora. That was extremely vague and extremely unclear. And I also, they were very hard to write for, those two characters. They were charming and witty and, they, and skin deep. They didn't have, you know, emotional complexity. So instead of songs like Will I Leave You from, you know, Alexis Smith, you know, we had a song called Swell, which was the two of them solving something, but very, very painlessly. Um, and it just sounds like we're just going to go on with this number for a long time. It, they were hard characters to write for, and I'm not sure that we did a very good job of that. I find it hard to, to listen to, uh, although there are people who call me up and tell me how much they like the score to Nick and Nora. 
I think they've gone mad. But, uh, <laughs> well, it's a very subjective art form. You know, they're, they're these shows that run for years and years and kind of, you know, don't have great music and then vice versa. They're short shows that people love. So you just never know what people are going to gravitate towards. I mean, there is a movement afoot to, to do another version of it. And I must say, I have an assistant who came to me by way of his love of Nick and Nora. And uh, we sat down and said, well, how how would we fix the murder mystery? And we did actually come up with an ending that was really great, which is not that just invent a character who wasn't even there, who was the screenwriter, because the one person who could write a mystery that would outfox Nick and Nora would be a writer. Mm -hmm. If they figured out that the mystery that they solved was too pat, the only reason that it was too pat was that a writer wrote it and in the process covered up his own tracks. It was a really good idea. So have there been efforts made to revive it, you know, have another life? Yeah, we had that. We had a real chat, nice chat over a glass of wine. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> our, you know. That was your effort. Yes. Yeah. 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 You had a nice conversation. I must say, the one thing that made me want to do it, the only thing that would make me do it, was that when in the last scene, you know, where you all the suspects are summoned to a room and you go around and saying, Youth, what did you do it? And we think for a minute that's the person who did it, but then it isn't. You move, you go around the room until you finally unmask who did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and when we figured out that uh, Tracy, the Christine Bransky actress, had, had uh, seduced the screenwriter in order to cover up the murder the line was you slept with the writer (laughs) (laughs) you know there's a hollywood joke which is she you know the ingenue was so stupid she slept with the writer right instead of the director right yeah right (laughs) you want to go if you want to make your way in the world you do not sleep with the writer when it comes to the previews, it was a rather lengthy preview process. It was supposed to open in November of that year, but it didn't open until a month later. So there were 71 total previews. I, I assume the show was changing a lot during those, and that was the reason for the delay. I wish I could say that it was changing a lot. It really wasn't. We were play, we would take this song out and put that song in, and we would write different songs. But basically, the show remained pretty much the same it didn't make use of a 71 day you know preview period um you know that's not a terribly long time if you in the old days where a show would open in new haven go to boston for three weeks and go to philadelphia for three weeks and then come into new york it's sort of the same amount of time Uh, and, and people would work on it the whole time we did it all in one swoop you know, and all in New York and all visible. Right, right. Because then the rumors started buzzing and different things. Uh, yeah. yeah. And that just makes it harder and harder and harder. And, you know, by the time we opened, I think everybody pretty much had made up their mind what they were going to think about the show. Now, from what I read, though, Faith Prince kind of stole the show. Oh, that She Faith, had a great performance. Since I was unable to see it, what was so remarkable about her performance? Well, first of all, she had a really good song called Men about a secretary who had been kind of used by her employers over her career. And it was a belty song, perfect for Faith's voice. And then uh, Arthur really, really knows how to write that kind of tough-talking girl and wrote a really, and I mean, she had really great lines. She was the victim. She was Lorraine, the one who was actually murdered. And did she have this very dramatic death scene? No, she just appeared in these in the sequences in which they're trying to solve the murder mystery. 
I see. We never get to see the actual murder. Oh, yeah. That probably would have been a good idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, staging a murder is is always fun for actors, at least. I mean, we certainly love to die and do our do our best dramatic or farcical death, depending on the the situation. Yeah, as the actor says in the Fantastics, the audience used to yell, "Die again, Mortimer!" <laughs> right, right. So, by the time it did open, did you feel like it was at least the best version of the show possible? No, I felt that it was going to open. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it opened. And the next day, I took my family and we went off to uh, Anguilla for a vacation. And I got the word that the show was closing while I was there. So I never even got to see the show again before it closed. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now, you say that you were gone by the time the show started closing. Was there any whispers, even leading into opening night, that it was going to be a short run? Well, I mean, no one expects it to be that short a run. Right. I mean, first of all, maybe somebody's going to like it. And and if a couple of people did, I think, you know, a couple of people liked it, sort of. Uh, Not enough to make anybody want to go to see it, but, they, you know, they weren't too terribly cruel about it. I mean, it was, you know, with... With uh, Charles Strauss and and uh, Arthur Lawrence and me and the producers of La Caja Fall and first great design team, it was an A-list show, you know, and the cast, you know, which was, you know, breathtaking. Um, Do you feel that the show kind of let the cast down, that you had these great performers, but it just didn't rise to that occasion? Well, I, I suspect that that's the case. I mean, it was not for want of trying. We kept trying to make to give everybody a real turn. We did, in fact, do a Faith Prince one that was just, that was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and Chris Sarandon was in it too. Mm-hmm. Chris Sarandon, yeah. He and uh, Joanna Gleason got together and got married. So we, there was some, something good came out of it. <laughs> that's well, That's good, yes. And then months later, you and Strauss were Tony nominated for Best Original Score. Was that at least some validation of the work and effort you put into the show? Yeah, I mean, you, you know, it becomes kind of a, a, an inadvertent joke uh, because uh, here you are, a show that ran one week, and yet the score gets nominated. I think it was not a strong season for new scores, you know, and you have to fill out four slots. But there were people who liked the show, particularly those big, long, solving the murder mystery sequences, which were very fresh and the sort of thing that, you know, people do more of now, but really had didn't do back then. 
Hmm. They were very impressive and, and clearly the sign of, of people writing it who, uh, you know, who were reaching for something interesting. And, and, uh, those sequences were, uh, what I think, you know, attracted people. They were balanced out by what I'm sorry to say were kind of bland songs from the main characters because I couldn't tap anything into either Nick or Nora that, uh, you know, would break your heart. And somehow a main character has to have a simple drive of some sort that you're connected to. Neither of them had anything at stake. And could that have been written in or was that just kind of baked into that Thin Man series and this is who the characters are? Well, I suspect that's who the characters are. I mean, the attempts to make the marriage be somehow in trouble never got off the ground because the marriage is based upon a joyous ignorance of what, of, of problems. If you check the banter uh, between the two of them, he says unspeakable things, and she doesn't care. She just laughs back at him and, and turns it on him. That's their joke, um, and uh, that's never in trouble in the course of the show. Arthur attempted to make that the plot, the story, that something happened between them in the marriage, but I don't think anybody ever believed it. Mm. She goes off and almost has an affair with somebody, but nobody believes that either, with a, a gangster who, who had sort of artistic leanings, that, you know, had, who sort of had a heart. That was Chris Sarandon's part. So... As the years have gone by, obviously we're, we're decades removed from it now. How do you feel about the piece now? Is it something that you remember fondly or is it just something that was a miss? And, you know, how does it stack up now in your career? It's hard. Listen, when you, if you do a show and you follow your idea through to the conclusion and you do it as well as you possibly can and it fails, it's okay because that's the show. What doesn't work is if you work hard and the underlying the foundation of it is is shaky you never really believed it and other people took you down some other kinds of roads so what opens is not even what you liked and then it get, gets treated badly it's like it's it's you know you can't go back to it and um we had a similar circumstance with a show called suzatska that was played in toronto um I can't say that I, I was drawn back to it because there were so many things that were wrong with it, and not the least of which was that the controlling artistic vision, which was Arthur's, was flawed. Would you say that's the, the biggest reason why you haven't wanted to revisit or revive it? Yeah. I mean, what's to go back and do? I mean, the, first, the first thing you have to do is revisit the plot and, and by extension, revisit the script. And uh, I don't know that it, that it would be worth the effort. You also wrote the lyrics to Miss Saigon, which came out the same year as Nick and Nora. So were you working on both projects simultaneously? Um, Nick, uh, Miss Saigon was, uh, was two years earlier. Nick and Nora was, was, what was the year of it? 1991. Yeah, in New York. But uh, Miss Saigon was 89 in London. Okay. So I, we, other than the fact that every time we'd open a production of <laughs> of Miss Saigon, we would work on it. I mean, every single time, five years into the run, we rewrote the opening, the closing number of the, the closing scene. Hmm. But, um, you know, but basically Nick and Nora was the one that was, that took the time. Now you yourself, you've, you know, of course, written lyrics, conceived shows, but you've also directed productions. Is there one that you enjoy more than the other? 
uh, I mean, ain't misbehaving uh, is a you know kind of a jewel in the crown. It, 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 right. I guess I have to say it's kind of perfect. Um, it never fails. You know, the the structure of it sends an audience out delirious, no matter what. Um, a good production or a bad production, they always sort of work. Um, it's really, really smartly organized and always surprises anybody seeing it. And there are so many complex reasons. I mean, I, if you want to press that button, I can talk about Amos Behaven for hours. But um, oh, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> but, but it, uh, because there are so many, you know, layers of stuff that's in it. What seems to be just a, an innocent entertainment using the Fats Waller songs to, you know, make an evening. And it is that, but also it's historical. It's um, it's a record of the great artists from the Harlem Renaissance who uh, paved the way for the artists who are working today. Uh, uh, it's got layers and layers that make me very proud. Um, but sure. I love the, the way the baby works. and. Uh, yeah, because much like Arthur Lawrence wrote the book and then directed it, you wrote the lyrics to Baby and also directed it. Do you feel that uh, <laughs> that you had any of the pitfalls that Arthur Lawrence fell into? Um, I don't know. I, I It's entirely possible that a different lyricist might have told the director to go, you know, do something better. Uh, <laughs> right. I, so I can't, I can't tell. But it was very much something that I was in charge of from the very beginning of the process, even even when we brought in uh, Sybil Pearson and, and um, other writers in the cast and everybody. But we throw out the second act of the show and the first day of rehearsals for the Broadway production. And sort of the rehearsal period was a rewriting period. I, you know, really, really was uh, as um, intense a creative process as I've ever gone through. And I just am really proud of it. Um, because we followed the ideas that we were following and and we got to them. That's a perfect example of you can like or not like Baby. I don't care. It is exactly the show that I want, you know, I set out to do. Yeah, as you said, that's really all you can ask for, that you created the show that you set out to create. And uh, I was looking at your list of Broadway productions and yeah, the ones that you directed, you either took part in the lyrics, you conceived it, but there was one production where you only directed, you weren't part of the writing team or conception, and that was the story of my life, at least as it's credited here. How was it just being a director and not having to work on the other parts of it? Well, the show the show was written beforehand. It was, it was a show that, that uh, I had attended a presentation in which three songs from the, from the show were sung, and they were really, really impressive. And I asked the writers what else they had done, and they sent me the rest of it. And I sent a long email saying, I think this is the story that you really are telling. You know, it's not the story you think you're telling, but I think this is the story you think you're telling. And they then went off and did a production in Canada in which they sort of followed that memo. And after that, the show was was well-received, but they weren't happy with the direction. And uh, they asked whether I might do it, I thought, sure. And um, I, I contributed in terms of, of inspiring them to write some dramatic things that were not fully realized in their, in their version, uh, mm -hmm. you know, described the, where the number should go. And they, when I did that, they came back with spectacularly good numbers. Um, I think that the score to 
story of my life is glorious and um it probably should not have happened on broadway it was a two-character show if it had been done you know in one of the new new world stages theaters it probably would be you know running today because it was um, was that kind of show it is done in seoul korea yeah i was looking at the productions that have happened yeah it only lasted three days on broadway but yet it's regional and international productions have gone on for years yeah i mean there are lots of shows that do that that don't succeed in new york and then go on and, and do extraordinarily well merrily we roll along was one obviously that's a biggie musical, mm -hmm. which was a you know a disaster the first time out but lynn and steve rewrote it and it's probably the biggest um money maker in stock and amateur that that's out there except for maybe annie yeah yeah i got to do susicle at, at muni it was a, a fun production yeah i mean it's a it's a really really good show it was not a good show when it opened in new york but i think you know they they fixed it uh ring of fire that i did ran a month in new york but it is done all over the world um, you know and and done all the time mm -hmm. so yeah there's life after broadway there's plenty of life after Broadway. Well, you've certainly had your list of credits and productions on Broadway and certainly made your impact on it. Uh, I greatly appreciate you joining me on the podcast and talking about Nick and Nora and some of these other productions. So I'm so glad you were able to join me. Well, thank you for even asking about Nick and Nora. I mean, it's not exactly something that I, you know, people don't stop me on the street and ask me what I thought about Nick and Nora. But, uh, Anyway, it's really fun to go and revisit it. I wish I remembered it more vividly, which uh, I, you know, perhaps I could. But well, I mean, it was so long ago, and it only lasted a week. And Ed, you were gone; you were out of town when it opened and closed. So you, uh... Uh, I didn't, even, I didn't even have a chance to like go down and you know say goodbye to the cast. You know, right, right. Oh, yeah. Well, again. Thank you for this. Thank you for just for, for coming on. I, I, I look forward to putting this episode together and, you know, it's been interesting just reading about the show and the different things. I, yeah. I'll have to dig into and see if I can find that commissioner thing, whatever that issue was. Yeah. It'd be interesting to find out what that was. Yeah. When you're in previews that long, people start talking about the fact that you're in previews that long, you know, Right. Yeah. That's one of the things that I was reading was that uh, the reviewers kept talking about how long previews were and they were just tired of the show being there. They wanted to see it. Yeah. yeah the only other show that did that was, was Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Oh yeah. Well, Spider-Man was its own beast. And, Oof. And I thought that everybody had forgotten Nick and Nora, but every, every time they'd talk about Spider-Man and how many previews it was, Oh, I, you know, it's almost as many as Nick and Nora or it's, longer than the previous winner which was nick and nora for the <laughs> so it was like well i <laughs> i guess if you're going to be famous for something yeah yeah well you know usually they they didn't mention who wrote nick and nora but often they did mm -hmm. yeah i would assume that you know with your long career that nick and nora is but a footnote and you know you've obviously enjoyed many other things no i actually you know i, I love the cast and i'm you know there were many things about it that were fun well yeah i mean if you got that cast together now even yeah. it would be the makings of a great show so yeah i i totally get that but i appreciate you uh coming on and, and talking about it thank you and it was really fun you're very good As you can see, neither of us seem to want to end the interview. I mean, we could have kept talking for hours. 
So thank you so much for joining Richard and me in this special interview episode. Be sure to check out whyillnevermakeit.com where you can support this podcast through donations and subscriptions, which will greatly help further my one-man production of these interviews and stories with lessons we can all learn from. Again, whyillnevermakeit.com. All right, as promised, I want to give you a small preview of that Nick and Nora episode on Closing Night, which showcases the kind of storytelling you'll find on that Theater History podcast. Even with all the right ingredients in place, a show can still falter on Broadway, and few shows have ever fallen as hard or as spectacularly as Nick and Nora which emerged from the Thin Man novel and popular film series into a new musical in 1991. The talented artists leading this ill-fated venture seemed like a dream team. There was Arthur Lawrence, the storyteller of West Side Story and Gypsy, Charles Strauss, the prolific composer of Bye Bye Birdie and Annie, and then Richard Maltby Jr., the creative force behind Ain't Misbehavin'. On stage, there was an equally all-star cast led by Barry Bostwick and Joanna Gleason. Valiantly, Barry and I were out there every night with these bullseyes painted on our tuxels because the show was just a fiasco from the beginning. But he was Grace under pressure and a darling. And uh, we, uh, there we stood at the firing slug. But you, but you got to go through these things. You know, it it makes the best stories. And, uh, of course, it's where I met Chris 31 years ago. The Chris that Gleason mentions is her now husband, Chris Sarandon, who was part of the talented supporting cast for Nick and Nora, which also featured Christine Baranski and Faith Prince, among others. On paper, this musical seemed like a guaranteed hit. But the pieces just never seemed to come together as Nick and Nora announced a total of five opening dates in 1991. First in February, then April, months later in November, and then two dates in December. Theater historian Mark Robinson gives his own thoughts as why Nick and Nora had so many delays and setbacks. I do think it didn't help that it came right on the tail of City of Angels, which was another murder mystery musical playing on Broadway at the same time. However, I've studied Nick and Nora inside and out. I've read the script. I've listened to the score. Someone even sent me the tracks of, that they recorded in the theater of a performance. The show doesn't work. I mean, it should have, but I think the reason it doesn't chiefly is that I think that Arthur Lorenz, who directed the piece and wrote the book for the piece, lost all objectivity about the piece. Originally, there was another writer hired to create the book and story for Nick and Nora. But once he walked out, Lawrence took over and completely controlled the show. And eventually, Lawrence's prickly reputation caught up with him as he unleashed tirades on the actors and creative team. Uh, Offer exploded in a way that I'd never understood. Uh, And what is down there beneath it was a note of, I don't know whether to call it apology or not, but it's something like that. That note Charles Strauss is referring to is beneath a poster of Nick and Nora in his home. The note is dated January 3rd, 2001, and says, Dear Charles, I played the CD of Nick and Nora after all this time and was impressed by your music. It's so good. It's so bad that what happened happened. Happy New Year, Arthur. So what did happen? 
What led to all the fights, frustrations, and financial failures that ultimately closed this show after just one week? As you'll see, Nick and Nora serves as a cautionary tale to anyone who thinks big names automatically mean big box office. Because even the brightest stars sometimes find themselves lost in the shadows. Yet Nick and Snora, as it has been called, has achieved a legacy and even some appreciation in the decades since its collapse on Broadway. Both Closing Night and Why I'll Never Make It are productions of Win Me Media, with me as host and producer of both podcasts. So be sure to go and check out Closing Night, and then come back here and join me next time as we talk more about Why I'll Never Make It. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.